Our text for this morning, one of those hard texts to preach, even harder in the context of having received those news about Carl's son Gregory, those who are older in the church may remember when he was an adolescent or a teenager, he used to come to our church sometimes and sat in those chairs and heard the word many times and even gathered with our youth. Uh, and he was shot on Thursday night. They don't know the details yet. It happened in North Miami. Carl had talked to him about a month ago, and it is a sad event for our brother. He, he, was, he was calm last night, but, but it, is, it is devastating news as Pastor Freddy said. Let's pray once again. Father, we come to you and commit the preaching of the word, even in the context of a, of a very somber news for one of our members, the death of his son in a tragic manner. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit may take over of our minds and our souls and our hearts and even of the one who speaks, that your word may come to us, to the glory of Christ, to the profit of your people, to the edification of your church. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Troy, if you can do something with the sound, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's uh, a lot of echo. Or uh, Thank you, brother. Thank you for your service there. Um, when I was... Seven years old, I think I'm pretty accurate on that statement, I started to take the school bus to ride to my school, and uh, I would hear this chanting, the mad dog barks, woof, woof, the mad dog barks, woof, woof. And Then I realized some days later that they were singing it to me. I was a mad dog. And when I inquired why, they said, because you have this serious mad face. 50 years into the future, or 40 plus years into the future, my wife asked me one day after I preached, are you mad? I said, I'm not mad. But you look mad in the pulpit. Really? Yes, you do. And since then, I've been trying to do my best to speak with a smile and not appear to be mad in the pulpit. Believe me, it's by design. I don't try to act when I preach, but she says, you look mad. Why are you mad? No, I'm not. (laughs) Then I realized all of these names they got me when I was a kid. I cannot repeat them because they were in Spanish. They were not bad words, but you would not understand them. And, And yes, I've always been this serious mad dog face type. And I have to preach, rejoice always. That's the text. We have been wired for happiness. The pursuit of happiness, it's even in our declaration of independence, right? We will go to our graves trying to find happiness. We will change jobs, wives, Husbands, churches, cars, homes, employment, you name it. 
Because we are looking for happiness. Let me give you a secret from 59 years old trying it. We were made to be happy. We were made holy and happy. For those of you who teach your children the children's catechism. But our father blew it in the garden. And since then, he was kicked out of the garden. We've been, and all of his children have been, trying to get back back home and trying to be happy as we were meant to be. But we can't make it because of sin. So here we find, under grace, the apostle commanding us, rejoice always. And it is a commandment. So the subject or the title of my sermon is the text. Rejoice always. And the outline is quite simple. The meaning of the text, the source of joy, and hindrances to joy. The meaning is very obvious. In Spanish, estar siempre gozosos. In English, rejoice always. In any other language, it's the same. Make a point to rejoice, to be glad. And here's a challenge. At all times. Always. This is either a bad joke, or God is a cruel ogre. Because how can we tell Carl, rejoice? How can we tell the widow, Rejoice. How can we tell the person who lost his job? Rejoice. The person who has cancer? Rejoice. How can we tell people who suffer what we suffer day in, day out? Rejoice. It's a commandment. It's an imperative. Paul does not give that as a suggestion. And if it is a commandment, then it is something we can control. And if we can control to rejoice because we are commanded to rejoice, then it is not a feeling, an emotion, or a sentiment driven by circumstances. It has to be something beyond that if we can control it because we are commanded. And when you analyze the person who wrote it, you say, ah, yeah, this Jewish rabbi who knew his Old Testament knew exactly what he was writing. He even was an example of what he was writing. Some interesting quotes. One of them reads, the Christian who remains in sadness and depression really breaks a commandment. In one way or another, he or she mistrusts God, his power, providence, and forgiveness. Another one says, the apostle meets the objections that he was requiring impossibilities as hard and impractical as they might think such a constant attitude of mind and heart may be, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's what the following verse says. 
Somebody else has says joy is that feeling of delight which arises from the possession of present good or from the anticipation of future happiness. Think on when you're going on vacation. Some of us enjoy more the thought of going on vacation than of actually being on vacation. The believer has abundant reason for constant joy. He possesses the blessedness of forgiveness and the sure prospect of eternal life. God wishes his people to be happy. He commands them to rejoice. Yes, to rejoice always. I know I didn't solve your problem. Actually, I may have aggravated it. Because now you're adding insult to injury. I'm not joyful, I'm not happy, and now you're telling me I'm in sin for not being that way. Let's keep going. This rejoicing has to mean something different to what we think. Why do I say that? Well, because in the, in, in the book of Acts, we find two gentlemen, Peter and John, who were being flogged with a whip. And they left the flogging, which was painful, rejoicing. To our knowledge, they were not masochists. To our knowledge, they didn't have any psychotic problem about enjoying or finding pleasure in pain. They were rejoicing because they were held as worthy of suffering for Christ's sake. Hmm. This rejoicing must mean something perhaps different to what I think. Paul, while he was in prison in Rome, rejoiced. He even commanded people to rejoice always. But he was jailed. Jesus told his disciples, rejoice. Not that the demons, subject to your word, they were happy. They were like little kids. Lord, even demons came out at your word when we cast them out in your name. And Jesus told them, don't be happy that demons were being expelled by your ministry, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Mm. The Beatitudes, when we are ostracized, insulted, rejected, unless you have a problem, you don't like to be rejected. You don't like to be ostracized. You don't like to be insulted. I remember how how bitterly I cried when the song came in the school bus because I was the mad dog, woof, woof. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be taunted, to be insulted, to be rejected. Oh, I love to be rejected for the gospel. No, I don't. I want to be popular. I want to be an influencer. I want to be liked. Oh, but that's what false prophets liked. Well, I'm not a false prophet, but I don't want to be rejected. I don't enjoy that. Well, Jesus says rejoice. When you are rejected and persecuted for righteousness' sake. So this means something. If we are commanded to rejoice, then we can control our rejoicing. And if we can control our rejoicing, then rejoicing is not a feeling driven by circumstances. 
So that brings us to the second point. What is the source of joy? Probably many of you have heard the verse from Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. May I share something? Whenever I heard that verse quoted, I just grinded my teeth. That's so shallow. What do you mean the joy of the Lord is my strength? I have a problem. I have a concern. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm afraid. I have whatever. And you're telling me, oh, rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Even Proverbs says, he who sings songs to an afflicted heart is like the one who pours vinegar in an open wound. We're not supposed to tell a person who's grieving, oh, rejoice, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. No. But the source of joy is the Lord. That starts to bring us somewhere. Because that's what Nehemiah told the exiles as they returned. And they heard the law read in their hearing. And by hearing the law, they realized that they had been exiled. And they had lost the kingdom because of sin. And Jeremiah says to them, well, well, it's not the time to weep now. Rejoice. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Jesus' words in the upper room discourse ring a similar theme. John 15, 11. These things, and Jesus is talking the night before going to the cross. And the heart of the disciples was heavy, was grieved, was sad. His master was going to be taken away from them. The ambience is very heavy. And he says, in that context, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be made full. So this is something more than giddiness and happiness. Praying in John 17, two or three times he prays, Father, I ask that my joy may be in them. And this is again, Jesus praying the night he was being betrayed and sent to the cross. So this joy is not this superficial, shallow giddiness that we associate joy with. It comes from God. Now let me give you a little side note. Who do you think invented humor? You think humor comes from the devil? When you see a funny person, and I'm not saying funny, vulgar funny, But there are people who are funny, clean funny, rejoice. That's part of God's image in that person. Humor even in animals. Don't you laugh at the stupid things your pets do? Who do you think invented that? Sometimes we watch YouTubes of things that animals do and we crack. Why? Because God is the source of joy and of humor. We laugh. I swear that even Simba laughs, but that's another story. Um, Now, what is joy? What's the definition of joy? Rejoicing is having faith in God's promises. Rejoicing is this sense of God promised it. Yeah, it's going to happen. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. Rejoicing is actually trusting God's promises. 
Remember that movement back in the early 2000s or late 90s, I forget, the promise keepers? Remember that? God is the promise keeper, not people. I'm not a promise keeper. Oh, I'm a promise keeper. No, God is a promise keeper. And that's the source of my joy. He is the one who all his promises, all his promises are yes and amen. But you know what Paul adds? In Christ Jesus. And that's the amazing note of that. Everything has been paid for. Whatever God has promised for good toward his own, because Jesus paid on the cross, you can take it to the bank. The promise is yes and amen. It will happen. You will see it unfold, whether on this life or the life to come. Why? Because Jesus paid and God was satisfied with the payment. My daughter, Laura, when she was little, five, six, we always have laughed at our children's Spanish. They laugh at our English, but we get even laughing at their Spanish because they create words. Now remember, whenever on a Tuesday, yes, yes, we did, we're going to go to the movies or we're going to go to the park on Saturday. But then Saturday come and something happened. And I would tell her, well, we cannot go to the movies. Or we cannot go to the park. Because X, Y, Z. And Laura, five years old, would say, Dad, she, she said, instead of tu dijiste, in Spanish, she would say, tu dijiste. You said it. She, she conjugated the verb wrong. Which is, but you said we were going to the park. Maybe none of you are here that day, but if you had a problem that Saturday and somebody needed to be visited at the hospital, it was not going to be that day. Just the mind or the word of my daughter telling me, but you said, Dad. That's it. Park or movies or whatever the promise was shall be. Because one thing I made a point of is try not to disappoint my children with any promise I made to them if I could keep it. That's hoping in God. He is the promise keeper. Paul's advice to those who are rich is, and by the way, all of you are rich in the context of 1 Timothy 6, 6, 17. Don't make any fancy that the rich people live in the rich area of Miami. We are the rich. You know what he says? Do not put your trust in riches, but put your trust in God. Your hope in God who gives us all things to enjoy. Amazing text. I'll say something about the prosperity gospel later on. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy in believing. Because yes, many of us believe. But we don't have peace and joy in believing. We believe with this, I don't know, wooden mindset. Yes, I believe the gospel. I believe the 1689 confession. But we don't have peace and joy in that belief because God promised. Many times at the bottom of the pit, when you really feel dirty, that's the time to tell the Lord, but you promised that you're the friend of sinners. But you promised that he who lives and believes in you shall not see death. 
but we'll have life everlasting. It is not when we are in our heights, but when, we're, when we are in our lows that we say, but you said that sinners can come to you and find rest and peace. And I'm coming to you as a sinner. That's rejoicing. It is putting our hope in God. Veronica read the text, but we read it so many times, and we use it even preaching, that we don't meditate on, for by grace you have been saved. By grace. It is the gift of God, received through faith. And this is not of you. It is not by works, so that anyone should boast. And I've seen and I've lived so many Christians who started by faith but want to perfect themselves by works. They're always wondering if they are saved. Why do you wonder if you're saved? Well, I don't know if I don't grow. But go to the cross. The source of joy and of hope is not your growth. It is that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. Now, how does that look in real life? Because it sounds nice in a pulpit. But what am I going to do with that on Wednesday? What's wrong with me? Why don't I feel it? Why my life gets tangled up during the week and everything goes kaput? Is there any problem with me? Yes. With you, with me, with us. We don't believe. That's our problem. We really don't believe. Remember the man? He's one of my favorite guys in Scripture because I use his prayer frequently. Lord, help my son. Look at the demon throwing him on the fire. Could you imagine the thought, the anguish of that poor guy? Please help my boy. And Jesus says, do you believe I can do it? And he says, yes, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. That's our problem. We don't believe. Psalm 131, 2 and 3 have a wonderful expression of how belief manifests. It's not here theologically. It's in the heart. Psalm says, Lord, I'm like a weaned child before you. Like a weaned child, I stand in my soul within me. And he says, Israel, hope in the Lord. Do you understand that imagery of a weaned child? Some of you mothers have breastfed. My wife did it. So here you have this child who's being breastfed, and Jewish breastfed children up to a pretty large, I mean, uh, not large, but long age, three, four years old sometimes. There's a point that you stop breastfeeding the child. And he wants to go to the breast and get his milk, and the mother just embraced him and said no. Your breastfeeding time is over. So the child would just be leaning in the bosom of his mother, knowing the milk was there, but he could not take it, not anymore. David says, my soul like a wind child. I'm just leaning to your bosom, O God, even though I'm craving inside for things I need. And I'm anxious, and I'm afraid, and I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm leaning in your bosom as a wind child. 
And in that condition, he says to God's people, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. He is cursing the day he was born. He is angry at God. He is bitterly griping at God for allowing Jerusalem to be burned, women to be raped, elderly men to be killed, children to be dashed against walls and stones, women ripping their their wombs and eating their children in the womb. It is something from a horror story. It is in your Bibles, by the way. And he's there saying to God, how can you allow that? Why did you let my eyes see that? Why did you send me to preach to them and they never heard me? Why are you so cruel, O God? Read it, it's in Lamentations 3. Do you know what he says all of a sudden? He says, but this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. When Paul says rejoice always, he was not in a concert of Juan Luis Guerra dancing on the floor. He had this in mind. Or he had Habakkuk. The same crisis. God shows him what the Assyrians will do to the kingdom of the north and to Samaria. And Habakkuk is telling God, why? Aren't you supposed to be holy? Aren't you just holy and you, your eyes cannot see evil? Why do you let the wicked take the ones who are less wicked than them? Why do you let these idolaters come and take your people? Aren't you supposed to be fair, O oh God? Tell you what, last night when I heard about Carl, I lost it in the car. And I'll tell you why I lost it. And I'm not woke, and I'm not Black Lives Matter, but I'm not stupid. You're born black, you're born in a poorer neighborhood. If you're born black, probably your parents are divorced. Perhaps your mother has a lot of children from different men. And you're just raised in this context of disaster. And it's a lot easier to be killed in North Miami than to be killed in Pembroke Pines or in Pinelands or in Gables by the Sea. And I just lost it in the car. And I asked God, may your kingdom come. Why? Why? Why, Carl? Habakkuk had that problem. But then he said, Though the fig tree does not bud, and no fruit is on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the sheep are cut off from the fold, and no cattle are in the stalls, yet, yet, I will exult in the Lord I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. They're complaining to God. And I have to admit that I, last night, 
I didn't complain against God, but I did complain to him. I did. What Habakkuk said, and I say, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't get election. I don't get infralapsarianism. I don't get, I don't get any of that stuff. But I know the judge of all the earth will do what is right. He will. He doesn't have to explain it to me. He doesn't know anything to me. I'm just a piece of dust worth nothing. I hope in his mercy. Asaph in Psalm 73. Same crisis. Why are the wicked prospering? Why? The wicked don't lose their jobs. The wicked don't seem to be to lose their husbands or wives. They don't seem to have special children. They don't seem to have big problems. They are just enjoying. You go to Miami Beach now, you'll see them in their boats drinking and partying, having the life, living the life. And Asaph says, why? Why am I depressed? Why am I suffering? Why am I in anguish? And he's complaining bitterly to God. Then he went to the sanctuary. And eternity came to his consciousness. And he understood their end. And he understood his reward. And he said, whom have I in heaven but you, and aside from you, I desire nothing. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my portion forevermore. That is the meaning of rejoice always. That's why Paul, in another letter, wrote, I have learned to rejoice. Not a feeling. I have learned to rejoice. Whatever my circumstances are, I know how to have in abundance. I know how to have need. In everything and for everything, I am satiated. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see the context of Philippians 4.13? It's not a context of prosperity. It is a context of necessity. Paul wrote it not in prosperity. He wrote it in prison. And then he wrote, rejoice. Always. And again I say, rejoice. The choice. It's not a feeling. Hebrews 13.5 also explains it. Being content with what we have now. Not content with the bonus that Comato is going to pay me in my next paycheck in June. Which they will if I'm alive. No. Content with my salary today. Content with the house I have today. With the wife I have today. With what I have today. Content. Why? Because God promised will not leave you, nor forsake you. That's rejoicing. Now, there are hindrances to rejoicing. There are impediments 
to rejoice. There are many, but I'll mention just some. One of them is sin. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you are a believer, let me give you the good news and the bad news. The bad news is, you're not going to prosper in sin. You won't. If you... (laughs) We had a friend who once wanted to fight a person and say three things, and given the testimony, he said, but regrettably, I had come to the Lord and I couldn't. Well, if you regrettably came to the Lord, (laughs) I have news for you. You're not going to enjoy sin ever more. Whether you're young or you're old, you're not going to have fun with sin. That's the bad news. Let me give you what the good news is. Are you sad today because your ship somehow left the dock? You, you let go of your ropes and you think, maybe I'm not a Christian. You know that sadness and depression you have, what it is? The Holy Spirit grieved within, within you. Or in the words of James 4, the Spirit zealously yearning after you and not letting you have fun. You have this angry spouse within you. The Holy Spirit says you're not going to be okay. You cannot be the husband arriving at 3 a.m. to the house in the morning expecting your wife to greet you with a kiss after you come smelling like alcohol, partying all day. It's not going to happen. You have the Spirit within you. Sin will not be accepted by Him. So that's actually the evidence of your salvation. By the way, that's the good news. You think you're not saved? Well, that's the very evidence that you are. Because those who do not have this Spirit rejoice and enjoy their sinful lifestyle. And they are not disturbed. That was Asaph's complaining. You don't bother them. Why do you bother me? Because you're mine. Pride is the other hindrance to joy. Pride. Because we feel entitled. What is to feel entitled? I deserve. I'm alive, therefore, life owes me. My parents owe me. The government owes me. The church owes me. It's all about me. And I don't have what I deserve. Komatsu doesn't value my services. And they don't pay me as I should have been paid. By the way, in my case, it's all the way around. They pay me too much, but that's another story. That's the sense of entitlement. The sense of pride. And I become depressed when my neighbor gets better and more. And that bothers me. Because somehow I'm not getting what I deserve. And covetousness and greed and envy and jealousy fills me. And those things are completely antagonistic to joy. I cannot be joyful if I'm envious and coveting and greedy and angry because I'm not getting my share or my fair share. And we must go to the root. 
The gospel lies at the root. Why does the gospel lie at the root? Because we either believe that we are undeserving or not. The problem with the gospel is not to tell people, Jesus died for your sins. We all believe that. I have my beloved congregation of Sunday mornings and my high school friends who demand their sermon and who call me their pastor. And I get them the gospel every week. And sometimes I wonder, is this thing coming across? Because everything is fine and dandy until you say, but you realize you don't deserve God's goodness. You realize you don't deserve God's mercy. You realize that you are evil. No, I'm not evil. I'm not in jail. I'm a good person. Yes, but to God's standard, we are undeserving. According to God, we should go to hell. No questions asked. But we don't believe that. Because we are not that evil. And that's why we keep forgetting the gospel. And Freddie, Darren, and Troy, and whomever else stands up here, just reminds you of the gospel and remind ourselves of the gospel. And Victor does it in Sunday school because we forget that we are undeserving. And that's why we hammer the gospel weekly. Because at the root of our lack of joy is that we have forgotten how undeserving we are. But Jesus paid it all. We keep trying to get Adam's fig leaves or Cain fruit basket. Jesus paid it all. Those are filthy rags. Our religion, our service, our singing, our coming to church, our giving offerings, our, our benevolence, our studying theology, our reading books, filthy rags. And fear, guilt, and anxiety are also joy killers. Those are the three horses of depression. If you like to read about depression, you know that those are the diagnostics. Are, do you feel afraid? Are you anxious about the future? Do you feel guilty? Oh, you're depressed. <laughs> A lot of people depressed then. When you're busy trying to find food, you don't have time to think on your depression. Get busy. A depressed person is talking to you. I'm not being unmerciful. I know a little bit of the thing. Just get busy. Because people in Haiti don't suffer from depression. People in Cuba standing in line for two weeks to get 25 pounds of gas don't suffer from depression. We, with our big fat bellies, many times suffer from depression because we don't have anything to do with our time. I'm not being unmerciful. I know there is a medical condition and I don't want to be unmerciful to you. But I know the monster from within. I know the monster. I've seen the monster. I live with the monster. Get busy. Fear, guilt, and anxiety. But you know how we battle those three horses of depression? And it's one of my verses. When I am engaged in the ring with mine. 1 John 4.18 There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. God loves you. He's not out to get you. He does love you. The punishment came to Jesus already. Oh, but God is going to punish me because I bought this car and I shouldn't have taken taken those options the salesman gave me. It was my vanity and now the car is going to break down. No, it won't. 
Jesus already paid for that vanity. We need to get the gospel in our system because love casts out punishment. And finally, and I'm going to stop here. I'll have to because I'm 41 minutes already. A skewed theology is an enemy of joy. This week, God sent a person to my house. That person needed a notary stamp. (laughs) And that person always challenges my theology. Because very naturally, all the stories about God's provision and God's dealings with that person started to flow in the conversation. When that person left, I told my wife, some people know something we don't. Our faith is so reformed, wooden. I'm not saying don't be reformed. I'm not saying don't read the scriptures and be an expert in scripture. What I'm saying is we serve a God who cannot feed our boxes. We believe George Muller's stories about God's miraculous provision. But when it comes to us, somehow, no, no, that was for George Muller's time. No, it is, it is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that doesn't make me a Pentecostal. We have this visceral rejection of prosperity gospel. And, and for some of us, it's like, Ooh. let me say something. It's not all wrong. God blesses diligent hands. Jesus promised those who seek God's kingdom first, all these other things will be added unto them. It's in the Bible. So it says, mind the business of my kingdom and I'll take care of yours. Don't worry about it. The lilies of the field and the birds of the air eat and are dressed. I'll dress you too. Don't mind it. Seek my kingdom and my glory first. You'll see it. And yes, we see it, but then we find some kind of logical explanation. And our skewed theology many times hinders us from enjoying this medicine we have for the sick. This good news we have for those who need healing. This good gospel we have for those who are downcast. We sound more like preachers of doom and gloom than preachers of a new covenant. Please understand replacement theology. I'm not John the Baptist. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Jeremiah. I am one who announces my Savior died and rose again to free us from sin. And in that, we rejoice because the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief bought a reason to rejoice. And the suffering servant is now the victorious Redeemer. Therefore, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. Father, bless your word and use it in the midst of our circumstances. By your spirit, may we hope in you. By your spirit, may we trust you. By your spirit, may we find you as our portion, our treasure, and the source of our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.